bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So if you remember from earlier this winter, um, there was a controversy on the lower mainland of British Columbia over uh, wolves and the trapping of wolves. Um, There was kind of a controversy uh, ensued when a trapper on Vancouver Island um, posted some social media pictures um, with some dead wolves, and uh, that kind of got the public all uh, fired up. One of the things that... um, the public picked up on the minister also made an announcement um, about British Columbia not having um, a quota for trappers in quite a few of the management units uh, around the province and that kind of got things set off in the direction um, about wolf quotas and over harvesting and then people started pointing out that you don't need a tag Uh, as a resident hunter to hunt wolves. Um, So anyways, kind of this whole thing sort of erupted. Well, it quieted down for a little bit, and now it's back um, kind of in the news again right now. So uh, I was reading an article in Focus magazine out of Victoria, and there's a a group or a person down uh, on the island uh, around um, Machosan and East Sook uh, where this wolf pack uh, in question that was being trapped uh, resided. And this person's had like a network of trail cameras uh, up and, you know, has been following this wolf pack for the last few years and gave it a name, um, all this kind of stuff. And so anyways, over the last couple of weeks, uh, this person hasn't been able to pick up um, any wolf sightings on the trail cameras. So kind of uh, cried wolf um, that the whole entire pack had been, um, uh, has disappeared. So... That kind of got um, the municipalities, um, you know, of Sook, uh, East Sook and Machosan kind of all uh, up in arms. The mayor of Sook has um, publicly called for a moratorium on wolf hunting um, and for more studies, which I found kind of strange if the controversy is about trapping and no quota on trapping that the mayor is actually calling for a moratorium on wolf hunting. Um, Probably just didn't understand uh, what was what was actually going on? So, you know, there was some controversy around um, the reason that this wolf pack um, had to be um, um, trapped and and removed. But in this article in Focus Magazine, um, the BC Conservation Officer Service uh, was quoted in it saying that they have not. They've confirmed that there have been no reports of the pack. Um, killing any uh, pets or livestock uh, in in and around um, a chosen or East Sook. So that was kind of part of the controversy there in the wintertime. Um, but, you know, it's kind of weird. I've been following this narrative, you know, a little bit as it develops. And and these things always change. Like these, there's something happens, a trigger, and then the narratives like it's spun off kind of like in, in a direction that, that people want to take it rather than just sort of staying stuck to the facts. Um, so, you know, this, this all started out um, about trapping and the trapping of wolves and the quota that was, um, you know, assigned to trappers or the, the fact that they didn't have uh, quotas on Vancouver Island. But the narrative's getting spun into an issue about hunting. 
and in particular, uh, the, the, the label of trophy hunting is, is coming out again. So it's just interesting how, you know, all roads lead to trophy hunting kind of thing when it has anything to do and, um, you know, with wildlife and harvesting and, and people can't even stay sort of stuck to the, to the topic that this is about trappers and the registered trap lines, uh, and what they are and are not allowed to harvest. So, you know, I did a little bit of digging, um, you know, people are all concerned, you know, about a couple of wolves or maybe, you know, more, you know, been removed, um, you know, from a pack. Um, there's more trappers on Vancouver Island. There's hunters that hunt wolves as well. And kind of this whole fervor about, you know, sort of, um, decimating the wildlife population or the wolf population and stuff on the island. So I, I looked into the scientific literature around wolf harvest rates and, and basically what I found was that the removal of wolves by hunters and trappers out of a wolf population has to get over 30 to 35% of the population before it would start showing an impact, like causing a decline to the population. So I did some more digging. Um, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, trappers take roughly 18 wolves per year. So based on population estimates for Vancouver Island, uh, you know, it's about 5 to 7% harvest rate for trappers. In 2018, hunters on Vancouver Island harvested uh, 35 wolves. And in other years, it was quite low um, into the single digits. I think 2019 was zero wolves taken by, by hunters. So hunters are removing, I figured, kind of somewhere around 3 to 14 percent. Um, so, you know, at absolute high end, hunters and trappers may be getting up to, you know, on, on a prolific year to about a 20% harvest rate and maybe more around averaging around eight, 10, you know, 12. So really low numbers, e even with some, um, uncertainty around the population estimates, um, the, the, Resident hunter take and the trapper take are, are fairly, fairly firm, statistically significant numbers, probably a little bit more uncertainty around the population. I think it's estimated around 250 to 350 wolves on Vancouver Island. Um, you know, even using those numbers, you know, that may be, you know, um, you know, have a degree of uncertainty around them. It just doesn't seem that the harvest rate is getting anywhere near that level that would be threatening wolves on the island at a population scale. Um, just to give you an idea, resident hunters across the entire province of British Columbia, the hunter resident hunter harvest is only about between 6 and 14 percent of the wolf population and that range is based on the low estimate for wolves in the popular in the province and the high um uh, range estimate in the populations or in the province so so province-wide hunters and trappers are kind of having a pretty minimal um impact on wolves if you're just simply looking at the harvest rate and whether or not that can um you know potentially uh, cause a decline uh, in the population. 
So there's a, a poll conducted recently in BC by a group commissioned by the group called the Fur Bears. And so they're kind of like an anti-hunting, anti-trapping organization on coastal BC. And so, you know, when these groups with a advocacy groups with a vested interest sort of commission a poll, um, I'm always a little bit, you know, sort of like, okay, I want to dig in into the numbers I did in the grizzly bear um, the polls on the grizzly bear hunt and there was kind of some funny stuff going on there with with numbers and whatnot but so I haven't dug into the the numbers on this research but I'll just kind of share share with you what uh, the fur bear um, um, survey came out with and so they said that it shows that the public opinion appears to swing solidly in favor of more controls meaning more restrictions on wolf hunting and trapping in the province. The survey found 87% of those polled, and I don't know how many people they polled, um, so 87% of the people that answered the poll disagree with hunting or trapping wolves as a means to increase ungulate hunting opportunities. Interesting. 90% of those that participated in the poll disagree with killing wolves for fur. So disagree with trapping. And 91% disagree with recreational killing of wolves. Which I don't know what that means, recreational killing. I think they, they, you know, it depends how that's defined. To me, it seems to be a trigger word where they're trying to get, you know, people to emotionally associate uh, hunters just going out and killing for fun, you know, woohoo, and, you know, and just kind of leaving the, the, the animal lay out there sort of thing and, and not have any value or, or not understand that, you know, hunters are out there, you know, harvesting wolves because maybe they do think um, that it's helping, um, you know, uh, ungulate populations by participating in a predator hunt. So anyways, I don't know what recreational killing means. It's just uh, something that's kind of a nebulous term. I think it's designed to kind of get some emotions going in the, in the people that, uh, answered the survey. So another part of the survey said a large majority of British Columbians also disagree with killing wolves with next, next snares, leg hold traps, poison, or aerial gunning in which the government is doing aerial, um, wolf control in the caribou recovery zones in the province, and the majority of British Columbians don't like that. They apparently would rather see caribou go extinct than to temporary, temporarily control wolves till the caribou herds get uh, stronger. It's also kind of interesting that they put poison in here. And then, of course, British Columbians were disagree with killing wolves with poison. Well, it's actually illegal in B.C. and they do it a little bit in Alberta. Um, but the government of British Columbia has never uh, approved and health never applied and Health Canada has never approved uh, poisoning of wolves in B.C. Now, this is really weird. So... 87, 90, 91% disagree with hunting and trapping wolves. Um, however, the survey said, more than half of British Columbians surveyed agree with eliminating wolves when they kill unprotected livestock. Isn't that weird? They are okay with killing a wolf if it threatens or attacks or kills livestock, but not to kill them 
if they're threatening the extinction of a mountain caribou herd. Kind of interesting. Anyways, um, there is a petition uh, that's out there and over 72,000 people have signed a petition asking for a moratorium on wolf hunting and trapping as population data is scarce and relies largely on reports from hunters. Probably go into this in another episode, um, but I'll tell you about how wolf populations are estimated in British Columbia's Wolf management plan, it's based on uh, prey biomass is one one of the ways. Um, Deer on the coast, moose in the north. Uh, The management plan is old, could probably be updated um, for sure. Maybe a bit more science put into getting a population estimates uh, around the, the province. But you know, the way I look at it is none of the biologists... None of the people that are out there seem to be concerned about wolves from a conservation perspective, like that they're disappearing off the landscape. If anything, their numbers are doing well. They're, there's been a big resurgence of wolves uh, in the province, recolonizing areas that they had been extirpated from. And honestly, if the harvest numbers are staying as low as what they are, it's kind of background you know, sort of noise in the population levels. I just can't see justifying diverting dollars away from wildlife conservation projects and species that are more important and pouring it into wolf studies just simply because a bunch of people kind of don't like wolf hunting and trapping. Be great if money was no object, uh, but it is an object in this province because we severely lack money for wildlife management and research in British Columbia. And if I were to create a priority list, um, I don't think wolves and wolf research and population estimates for wolves would make the top 100. So remember folks, all of this, all of this has happened because of one social media post. There's a new paper published in the Canadian Journal of Fisheries and Aquatic Scientists, uh, Sciences, sorry. Um, Scientists uh, that wrote this paper have found on coastal British Columbia in the Fraser system that adult female salmon are suffering a higher level of mortality than males. And they're sort of signaling that this could be a large-scale pattern um, and conservation concern. So what they're finding is on the spawning grounds, um, primarily the sockeye salmon, but it it, it was showing up in um, Chinook as well, that the female sockeye salmon or the female salmon are dying faster, proportion, and there's proportionally fewer females on the spawning grounds. And so females started, females outnumbered males on the spawning grounds uh, in, in the scientists' counts up until about 2000, so 20 years ago. It makes sense, right? More females, less males. We know how all that works. Don't need that many males. Um, but around 2000, they started to see that change. And incrementally, there's been fewer and fewer and fewer females proportionally in the population showing up on the spawning grounds. Um, so it's just what they're calling like a skewed sex ratio. 
part of what the scientists think is going on here is that the female mortality was the highest during migration in the rivers when the conditions in the river were super challenging. So periods of really high turbulent flows, high water temperatures, which we had back around 2016, 2017, 18, somewhere in there. Um, and if those conditions exist, high turbulent flows, high water temperatures, which makes sense in the, you know, more in the headwaters of the smaller streams near the spawning grounds, um, that the mortality was higher towards the end of their migration. So basically what that's doing is, is uh, the females have smaller hearts and more of their body's blood is being moved into the reproductive organs as they're getting towards the end of their migration. So they actually need more oxygen. So when the migration, like if something happens and, you know, like a, the landslide and, you know, a uh, big bar there where, it, you know, necked the river down and the, the flow was higher. So it's harder for fish to migrate or the higher temperatures, which means there's less dissolved oxygen in the water. All of this makes it difficult for the females whose bodies are working harder and having their muscles are having to make do with less blood because that's going to egg production. They already have smaller hearts, um, so it's hard for them to get oxygen. Um, so they're running out of energy. Um, their their hearts aren't functioning properly. Um, they're under high stress. They're getting diseases, um, and so they're more proportionally more females are dying uh, during the migration. So. Um, scientists said basically one of the only things they can do is, you know, adjust uh, harvest rates um, to protect more females. Um, I would assume that means like fishermen, uh, indigenous and non-indigenous uh, fishers would be letting females um, go. And the big bar landslide uh, was an issue that the scientists pointed out on the Fraser, which they're, you know, still working away on, on um, getting a, a better fish passage through through there. And, you know, as an example, um, scientists actually um, identified this years ago on the Seton River Dam near Lillooet. And the flows in the dams were, were just a little bit, you know, too, too high, um, you know, a little bit too forced, too, too turbulent. And the scientists saw that, that the females were having trouble um, with those getting around uh, the dam because of those dam flows. And so the scientists worked with the Seton River Dam and they uh, adjusted the dam flows and they immediately noticed improvements in the female um, salmon moving past that dam. So uh, that's where science and, and conservation and fisheries management kind of all come together. But uh, from a big picture, uh, with everything that's going on with all of the various salmon runs uh, in the Fraser system, um, to see f proportionally fewer females on the spawning grounds is definitely a concern. There was a grad student at the University of British Columbia that was working on um, his thesis, and he was looking at the uh, mortality to um, juvenile salmon from all the different um, um, pr uh, predators of, of juvenile salmon, um, raccoons, otters, kingfishers, mink, all that kind of stuff. And they put these little tiny tags in the juvenile salmon called pit tags, and... Um, it was kind of a really 
serendipitous event where um, the grad student was on the river with an uh, an indigenous guide, and they were traveling looking for these um, pit tags, uh, scanning for the pit tags, uh, you know, to see if they've been uh, show up in the you know the the poop of raccoons and otters and kingfishers and stuff along the shore. And uh, the the guide was like, well, what about those herons over there? And they never had thought herons might be a, a significant consumer of um, juvenile salmon. So they went to some of the rookeries uh, on the Fraser River and they did scans and they found a whole bunch of these, like lots of these pit tags. And they ended up doing the, the, the math and whatnot. And they figured that herons consume about an estimated 1% to 3% of wild and hatchery reared juvenile salmon each year on the Fraser system. So they did, uh, in the, in the article I read on this, they kind of, I think sort of speculated that herons might actually be picking up juvenile salmon that were in the shallows that may have been like struggling and, and they were going to die anyways. And so the herons were just picking them off. Um, but they, they, uh, also said, that the little juvenile salmon at a certain stage in the development of the baby herons is a super critical food source because they're so small and the mama herons don't have to worry about the babies choking um, by bringing them typically larger, larger items that uh, herons uh, catch. So kind of interesting. The study did, um, did say that predation on juvenile salmon between 2008 and 2018 um, were quite stable throughout the Fraser system. There wasn't uh, a lot of, I guess, really spikes in um, in predation on juvenile salmon from these normal predators. So over in Newfoundland, the aquaculture industry is set to put uh, ocean farms in the area of Placentia Bay. And that's kind of got uh, folks upset over in Newfoundland. The Sam- Salmonid Association of Eastern Newfoundland, um, I read a statement in one of the articles that said, um, they said that there's clear evidence that whenever and wherever salmon farms are placed near rivers, with wild salmon stocks, those populations do not decline, they disappear. And so the Salmonid Association of Eastern Newfoundland is calling on the aquaculture industry to start funding research to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, in their claims that their ocean farms are not going to hurt wild salmon stocks. The Salmonid Association wants scientific proof and they've asked, publicly asked, that the industry start paying for good solid research to show that they aren't going to or not hurting wild salmon populations. So the Cree Trappers Association um, in Quebec has issued, uh, I guess, like a statement to Cree hunters asking them to forego Um, traveling from northern Quebec um, south for the southern goose hunt uh, in the spring 
they did it last year because of COVID, just basically asking people not to travel from communities in northern Quebec to southern Quebec to hunt, you know, because they come into contact, you know, with people. Somebody could contract COVID and then take it back to the northern communities where, um, you know, where elders and stuff would be like super vulnerable. So it's apparently uh, become a super popular hunt because of the high goose populations. And um, so there's been, you know, the last several years, a lot of Cree hunters are traveling uh, south in the springtime. Um, I guess harvesting geese is helping out farmers. Uh, at that time of the year, they're planting fields and they get these big swarms of geese coming in. So they kind of like having the hunters there. And so, man, that's just really unfortunate, you know, kind of side thing of COVID kind of interrupting um you know, hunting plans and stuff like this. And, you know, the thing that really got me is this article, I read it. There was a picture from a couple of years ago, um, and there were a couple of really young kid, Cree kids, um, youth, maybe eight, nine years old, and they were on one of these uh, goose hunts in southern Quebec with their um, with their families and stuff. And, oh, man, these kids were just so excited you know the big smiles and holding the geese and stuff and and uh i just feel bad for them um you know like kids having to be told that they can't can't go do that again this year so man hopefully this covid thing goes away pretty quick and they can get back to hunting geese in southern quebec a couple of um episodes ago i was telling you about this um issue of night hunting in Manitoba and kind of the, the safety concerns around night hunting. Uh, basically, it boils down to if non-Indigenous hunters are hunting at nighttime, they're poaching because it's illegal. But Indigenous hunters under the Canadian Constitution are allowed to hunt at night. But there was still a lot of concern about that because of the dangers at nighttime of bullets, you know, hitting homes, livestock on, you know, on private lands, these, these sorts of things. So the uh, Manitoba government brought in legislation um, that sort of set up uh, a southern zone where the agriculture areas are and basically said uh, if I recall, it was sort of like private land was was off uh, off limits for uh, indigenous night hunting, but the crown land um, was was okay. The northern half of Manitoba, there was no restrictions just because of the low density of people and farms and homes and that sort of thing. So, but uh, all all is not well in Manitoba with night hunting. So the rural municipality of Portage La Prairie is calling on the provincial government to reconsider the permit system that it uses to issue to Indigenous hunters um, for night hunting. And what they're still finding, I guess, some problems uh, with night hunting when there's small pieces of crown land adjacent to large um, blocks of private, private land farms. And so when hunters are going into these small pieces of crown land near people's homes, I guess there's still um, maybe some not some good stuff happening there. So um, anyways, they're 
they're basically the uh, rural municipality is asking that permits not be granted for um, for small pieces of crown land. I don't know what small means, um, but only only given permits for uh, the indigenous hunters to go out on crown land when the crown land portions are really large or there's multi-sectional blocks of land um, that kind of allow them to hunt and not, um, you know, put uh, people and livestock at risk at nighttime. So. In Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan government um, is looking at increasing uh, the limits for deer hunting for mule deer in Saskatchewan. I guess crop damage and vehicle collisions is skyrocketing in Saskatchewan because of the increasing um, mule deer population. So they're looking to turn to hunters to increase their opportunity to harvest mule deer, more mule deer um, to help deal with Crop damage and vehicle damage. Um, the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation um, is on board. They passed a resolution uh, last, about a year ago, um, actually uh, jumping ahead of this issue, requesting that the province increase its mule deer harvest allocation. So uh, it's kind of one of those funny things, you know, these stories about hunting. It's like you're either... It seems like we're either talking about populations that are struggling and dwindling uh, and what to do, you know, kind of with hunting seasons and stuff. And then on the other end, there's like these populations that are, um, you know, increasing and wildlife are causing damage, economic damage and endangering people's lives and stuff. So they want more hunting to get rid of more of them. So uh, it's kind of a kind of a dichotomy. It's like bookends. You kind of got either not enough or too many. So, so there's a new paper out in the Journal of Ecology and Evolution on uh, brown bears, grizzly bears. It's called "Vital Rates of Two Small Populations of Brown Bears in Canada and Range-Wide Relationships Between Population Size and Trend." So what that basically means, vital rates, when they talk about vital rates, they're basically looking at a number of things in a bear population that's giving it like the vitals, like a doctor, you know, checking a patient out kind of thing. So they're looking at um, uh, breeding adult female um, survival, cub survival, um, you know, those those sorts of things, the, the drivers of a population, which is breeding females their survival, how many cubs they're having, um, what age um, females are being bred and starting to, you know, to, to um, bring new bears into a population. So those, those are what they call vital rates when they're talking about um, grizzly bear populations. So this study was actually um, based in British Columbia, and they looked at two grizzly bear populations uh, in the province. And the, the, Two populations had very similar reproductive rates. So both populations were doing pretty well, um, you know, similar similar um, survival and reproductive rates in the bear populations. But they found that when the bear population in the one study area was less than 25 bears in an area and that they were fairly isolated, um, they weren't doing so well. The, um, the vital rates were not as good, um, 
more cub mortality, um, more female mortality, more human-caused mortality. And so the population was not um, doing as well. When the population, the other study area, was only about 45 bears in the population, but they knew that there was some genetic movement and some connectivity of that bear population with some adjacent bear populations, um, they found that the vital rates um, were a bit better. Um, that, you know, female breeding female survival was better, cub survival was better, um, that sort of thing. So it's just kind of a really interesting thing, I thought, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, maybe potentially one day um, having a grizzly hunt back in BC, that um, this paper really kind of points to understanding where bear populations are isolated and where they're very small because um, it basically kind of sounds like that if the populations are small isolated they're not getting genetically um, some diversity from from adjacent populations that they probably wouldn't sustain um, any type of a harvest now in this paper um, this was kind of kind of interesting they quoted another study um, that these uh, grizzly bear researchers had done um, before um, they decided it in this one paper. And again, here in British Columbia, these same two bear populations, actually the same areas, they're just, just east of the coastal range and uh, kind of the southern half of um, uh, BC. And they looked at what the bear populations did in response to the hunting ban on grizzly bears that was brought in in 2000. So if you've been following things with the grizzly bear hunt, you would know that in 2000 there was a moratorium put on grizzly bear hunting. Um, it only lasted for a short period of time, a couple of seasons I think if I recall, and then governments changed over and um, the liberal government brought it back, they brought the grizzly bear hunt back. So what they found that post-ban that the isolated population of bears where there was 25 individuals and le or less than 25 individuals, even after hunting stopped, their population was decreasing by 5% per year. But the population that had 45 bears in it and they had some genetic flow, some genetic diversity from connected uh, to, to other bear populations, their population was increasing post-ban, after the ban, by 2% per year. So I just, you know, recently there was a bunch of chatter on social media about, you know, changes uh, in the number of grizzly bear conflict reports since the 2017-2018 ban on grizzly bear hunters, there's been like a big spike in um, conflict reports in the province. Uh, whole different topic there, but I just thought this was kind of interesting because this is a little bit of data that's looking at the response of grizzly bear populations as a result of the ban that was that was put in place some 20 years ago. And basically, you stop hunting the bears. If their populations are small, they continue to struggle. There's just a lot of factors um, that are that are causing cub mortality, 
and if the populations are a bit better and there's good connectivity on the landscape um, after the hunting ban the population was starting to increase so apparently i talked to a grizzly bear researcher the number of pop grizzly bear isolated grizzly bear populations in bc there's not that many of them where the populations are this small 25 or fewer bears and they're basically isolated so i would hazard a guess that since the ban in 2017-2018 that bear populations in most places of British Columbia are probably increasing um, because of the hunting ban. So in early March um, there was kind of another controversy around wolves. Um, Always seems to be wolves. There was a wolf that was collared in Banff National Park and it went on a walkabout and it was shot in Montana by a rancher and so that kind of caused a big social outrage uh, as you can imagine and um, sort of I seen you know different calls about you know like the the parks need buffer areas around them where you can't hunt and trap you know these sorts of things and so it's kind of a weird concept you have a park boundary and then outside of that it's just regular crown land where people do but if you put a buffer area on it's like what does a buffer area mean it's basically expanding you know the park park boundary uh, which is a pretty complicated endeavor but uh, the one paper i was reading on this this one wolf um, like this is not unknown to scientists so they said wolves are anywhere from about a year and a half to three and a half years old start to disperse because they're looking for their for their own place to call home you know they're gonna claim some territory and start start developing a pack of their own um a year and a half to three and a half years old um so this wolf that was shot down in montana i guess was young was only three-ish or three and a half but interestingly enough wolves that live in banff national park because they move in and out of the park a lot the park was just not set up sort of you know because it's Canada's oldest national park it was originally called Rocky Mountain National Park Uh, later became Banff but the boundaries weren't set up with this type of knowledge of how wildlife move on the landscape so basically the wolves that live there are moving in and out of the park and of course as soon as they leave um, they're subject to hunting and trapping and there's been studies that have been published that show that the wolves that live inside Banff National Park actually have the same level of mortality human caused mortality than wolf packs that live outside of national parks that are fully subject to all of the things that um, cause human mortality however scientists that were reporting on this also pointed out that in banff national park the human related mortality on wolves inside the park is still really high in other words It's a national park, but they are killing a lot of wolves inside Banff National Park. Highways, trails, I even saw one report where a young wolf actually choked to death uh, or had a great big huge chunk of leather um, stuck inside of it um, from probably getting in, eating people's garbage and stuff. So, uh, yeah, basically, I think what I saw was one of the scientists said that, um, you know, sort of got a, 
clean up your own house first inside Banff National Park with respect to all of the things that are killing wolves inside the park, kind of before getting too wound up about what's going on when the wolves leave the park. Kind of thought that was interesting. So in Vancouver and Stanley Park, uh, kind of in, in uh, the latter part of the winter, there was a bunch of incidents of coyotes um, nipping people, joggers and, you know, and all this kind of stuff going on. And a few coyotes were trapped and removed by the conservation officer service that were being a little too aggressive. So I was looking at a, uh, a study of urban coyotes and um, this study said they're basically like eating garbage and uh, that that's apparently not very good for humans to be in and around coyotes that are subsisting off of garbage. So the studies um, showed that coyotes, urban coyotes, had less fat in their kidneys than their counterparts that were living in the wild, uh, which is an indicator that urban coyotes are not very well nourished if they are lacking fat in and around their kidneys. Urban coyotes had 37% larger spleens for the size of the animal, which is an indicator that the urban coyotes are having more challenges to their immune system, diseases and parasites. And 50% of the urban coyotes um, these are dead ones, they do necropsies on, um, were more likely to carry the parasitic tapeworm than coyotes that were out living in the wild. And that's kind of where the, the risk to humans lie is that when urban coyotes um, are living around people and dogs and pets and all that kind of stuff, they are less healthy, less nourished, which may be driving them to uh, bite people and they have more tapeworms and so those tapeworms can get transferred to people the um the book coyote america is uh is a super interesting read but one of the things that dan flores the author wrote in coyote america is this is really interesting Coyotes in North America actually evolved living with people. So this is not a new thing, like coyotes living in urban areas. They have been doing that ever since there was people in North America. It's how they evolved. They, they, a portion of the coyote population just learned to live with people and survive on that margin between civilization and the wild and eked out a living there without actually becoming domesticated. So it's, it's super cool aspect of coyotes. And, uh, I just think it's interesting that the urban coyotes that everybody's sort of getting up in arms about, um, down in Vancouver, it's as natural as natural can be that they're actually living in amongst people, at least according to Dan Flores, author of Coyote America. So I was reading a study um, published just recently by archaeologists, and they 
they went through a whole bunch of data, thousands and thousands of bones that were collected from archaeological sites along the west coast of Canada and the United States. So, you know, all the way up the Pacific Northwest, British Columbia, uh, up into uh, Alaska, and looking at... Um, they, they basically took all the bones that had been collected in these archaeological sites that were just labeled as canid bones, dogs from the dog family, the canine family. And they went through and they classified all of those bones from f- that the original collectors didn't do into whether they were wolves, coyotes, foxes, or dogs. And what they found was... And anthropologists had known about this around the time of contact, but indigenous peoples in the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia and up into Alaska had a domesticated dog that they actually bred and used for wool. They called them wool dogs. And what they found in these these archaeological sites that 54% of the canine bones that were in the archaeological sites were from domestic dogs. So they figured that these wool dogs um, were a really significant part of indigenous communities and their way of life, at least for the last 5,000 years. So they think that indigenous people actually domesticated and bred and created the wool dog. Um, Some researchers think that they may have actually done that because mountain goat wool was incredible incredibly valuable. I mean, so all of these wools were used to weave blankets, pre-European contact. They weave blankets and, and garments and stuff out of it for the warmth, right? And so mountain goat fur was, was highly valued for that. But, you know, you could imagine like how difficult it is to get mountain goat fur that um, some researchers think that may have been the impetus or the motivation to um, create the woolly dog breed is so that they could actually like like harness them and 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 ranch these these wool dogs the interesting thing about some of this is just just kind of a side thing is that the second most prolific bone in these archaeological sites was from wolves and out of all of the sites that they studied up and down the Pacific um, coast, I think it was only 19 total sites um, had wolf bones in them. But to me, that seems to be indicative that indigenous people were actually hunting or trapping wolves on the Pacific coast and using their wool underfur in these, these, um, garments and blankets. So, um, that's kind of interesting as well. The wolf dogs apparently were extinct, went extinct by about 1858. So kind of right around the time when, 
European contact was made. Um, blankets were introduced. Smallpox started to, you know, uh, wipe out indigenous communities and the, the wool dog went extinct. If you go back to an earlier episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast, um, when we had President Chad Norman Day from the Taltan Central Government on the podcast, he was talking about the Taltan bear dog. Um, and it was the same thing. It was a specific breed of dog that the Taltan had for hunting bears. And he told the same story that they basically, when the Europeans showed up in contact and all the things that happened with it, that the the dog just went extinct. Um, they also, in this article I was reading, I think one of the reasons the dog went extinct was is because the Europeans, you know, brought blankets. Um, President Day was also saying that sort of the the impacts and ramifications of, you know, Europeans showing up and the diseases and all that sort of stuff and, and that that happened in indigenous communities that people just struggled to exist and just kind of stopped taking care of, you know, the bear dog. Maybe the same thing happened with the, the wool dog and um, nobody looking after them and they just, they went extinct. So... The only other domesticated wild animal in North America, like a a wild species that was domesticated by indigenous peoples, was the wild turkey. It was bred into the Mexican wild turkey um, by indigenous peoples in central Mexico around 800 BC. And it was domesticated and used as a food source so other than that turkey this wool dog may be one of the only other indigenous domesticated animals in North America but it was not used for food it was used for wool cool so last year New Brunswick was all set to have their first wild turkey spring hunt. And it got put on hold because of COVID and all of the lockdowns and everything. So apparently this year it's going forward. Uh, Right now, between April 6th and 16th, um, they are having a lottery draw for 400 permits. So 400 lucky hunters will get to hunt a bearded male turkey be allowed to take one this spring they estimate the wild turkey population in new brunswick is around 2000 and the season's going to run from may 10th to may 22nd a little later than what uh we're used to here in british columbia which our season opens up uh in a week and a half on the 15th uh theirs is a little later may 10th to may 22nd that's only a 12-day season, but uh, good luck, wild turkey hunters in New Brunswick. Super exciting. Uh, I love turkey hunting, and I love to see the opportunity to be expanded. The New Brunswick Wildlife Federation is also excited about this because what was happening in New Brunswick, because they didn't have a wild turkey season there, uh, hunters were actually going to Maine to hunt turkeys in the state of Maine, but now 
the New Brunswick Wildlife Federation said this is a win because turkey hunters are now going to stay in New Brunswick. It's going to keep the hunters there. It's going to keep the dollars in New Brunswick, which is good for hunting in New Brunswick, which is good for hunting in Canada. So good luck in the first wild turkey season in New Brunswick. Look forward to seeing how that goes. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you.